Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Week one of the 2019 ATP season in the books. And boy, oh boy, it's already getting interesting. Eyebrows are already being raised based on this first week. A few things we're not used to seeing. One, Novak Djokovic losing before finals. He hadn't done that since last August. Since losing to Stefanos Tsitsipas in Toronto. That is a ridiculous stretch of finals made. But last week, Roberto Bautista Agut in the quarterfinals in Doha, Qatar defeated Novak Djokovic. What does that mean for next week for the Australian Open? And meanwhile, Roger Federer clearly in better form where than, than he left off at the end of 2018 going 3-0 in Hopman Cup. Rafa Nadal missed last week, doesn't have any tune-ups going into the Australian Open except for this fast four, and I did watch that last night. He lost to Nick Kyrgios in this little exhibition We'll get into all of that. There's going to be a lot of big three talk on this edition of Monday Match Analysis. But first, I want to show you a clip from my live chat with Jeff Salzenstein two weeks ago. It'll serve as a really good refresher for where I stood two weeks ago on the landscape of the ATP World Tour. My prediction for 2019, in a more general sense, this wasn't Monday Match Analysis. This was my live chat with Jeff Salzenstein. I'll talk about it more, but first, let's watch. Let's go from 10 to 1. I have Marin Cilic beginning his decline this, this season. Okay. I thought last year was a bit of a red flag because he was in great health. He should be in his prime, and he's losing matches he shouldn't lose. I have Karen Hachinov moving up two spots from, from the beginning of the year. Currently, he's at number 11. Yep. Um, and then another next-genner. Finishing slightly above Hachinov is Stefanos Tsitsipas. Yep. His rate of improvement is absolutely insane so far. It's Juan Martin Del Potro. Not mm. healthy to start the year. Not as good on clay and on grass as he is on hard court. That leaves Del Potro with really just one season to compile rankings points. At number six, this is a next-gen guy who I think is ready right now to have his breakout season, and that's Borna Cioric. I think Borna Cioric is probably the only guy in all of the next-gen, maybe him and Hatchinov. Cioric is the only guy who is physically ready to make deep runs in best of five. At number five, Roger Federer. Wow. So, moving down. Wow. Um, Federer has defied logic and odds before. But logic suggests you don't get any better at the age of 37. 
Um, at number four, this is the guy who who I think, if the cards fall in the right place, he can be the guy who we look back on this year and we can say this guy finally broke out, mm. um, and that's Dominic Teams. There's two majors that team can make finals, semifinals. That's gonna that's gonna propel him into the top five. True. At number three, I have Rafa yeah. Nadal moving down one wow. spot. If you're only gonna if you're only gonna finish eight tournaments, and let's give him the benefit of the doubt, let's say he finishes twelve tournaments in 2018. That's still not enough to be number two in the world and fend off Sasha Zverev, who's gonna play a ton more tournaments than Nadal. So at number two, I have Sasha Zverev leapfrogging Nadal, despite the fact that I don't think Sasha is gonna win a slam, and I think Nadal probably will win the French. Wow. And then at number one, Novak Djokovic, he stays top of the men's game, holds on to that number one. Uh, ranking in the world. That's a live chat with Jeff Salzenstein. I do it every Sunday on his channel, Tennis Evolution, rather, on YouTube. Jeff is a former top 100 pro, now a very influential um, American tennis coach, and puts out great YouTube content, coaching content, um, tutorials, uh, technique, tactics, all that stuff. Subscribe to Jeff's channel. And starting next week, this is every Sunday we do this live, starting next week, these live chats will go in audio form on the Monday Match Analysis podcast feed. If you don't know, I'm on Spotify, I'm on iTunes, I'm on Google Podcasts. However you get your podcast, please subscribe to Monday Match Analysis. Rate and review if you're on iTunes. Um, so I'll have Monday Match Analysis go on there um, every single week. But also, starting next week, my live chat with Jeff Salzenstein. That's why I decided to play that clip. You know, plug a few things and... Hopefully that refreshed you on some of the things I talked about last week. And it's a really good segue into what I want to start the show with here. And that is the one thing in that list that I'm already rethinking. And you can probably guess it. At number five, I put Roger Federer. And I said that at the age of 37, you usually don't get any better. But it's quite clear in a very small sample size of three matches, exhibition matches, no less, Hopman Cup, and I, I believe the intensity is very high. But nonetheless, exhibition, he beats Sasha Zverev, he beats Stefanos Tsitsipas, and he beats Cam Nori. And he looks really impressive in all three of those matches. It is clear that his form has taken a step up from where it was last year, especially from the period of time after the American hardcore swing. So Wimbledon to all, all the way to the end of the year where Roger Federer simply looked out of sorts, didn't have his serve, didn't have his forehand, didn't have his backhand, didn't have his movement, didn't have his mental. He didn't have anything. And he looked fantastic in Perth. It's... It's hard. You, I can't say, and I would love to say, this is what Federer, this is what looked different, this is what he made better, and no, I can't say that. Do you know what got better? Everything got better. Do you know what was wrong? Everything was wrong. There wasn't one part of Roger Federer's game that wasn't right at the end of last year. None of it was right. And now, all of it looks right. But if you want specifics, okay, I can do specifics also, of course. He's hitting over his return more, more aggressive returning. Against Zverev, he was serving so big that, that he had to resort to a little bit more chipping. But against the other guys, he's, he's trying to get over his backhand return. 
defensively, he's he's using the floating defensive slice less, which I believe was a crutch last year. He's using that less. He's coming to the net more. He's missing his forehand less. Less. He's hitting his forehand with more sting. It's He's back to the Roger Federer where if you leave an attackable ball in the middle of the court, you get absolutely destroyed with his precise and laser-like forehands where they're hard to read. His footwork makes it impossible to read. His hips make it impossible to read. He runs around and you don't know if he's going inside in or inside out. He's mixing in drop shots. You don't know if he's coming to the net or if he's not. And his serve, which also wasn't good enough last year, also looks a lot better. I always like to start off Monday match analysis, especially when I'm digging into a match uh, with a bit of a more technical breakdown. So I have something for you guys, and it's something that I've kind of thought about watching Roger Federer and thinking about the chip and charge, because the chip and charge has, for the most part, gone extinct in tennis, and it's due to modern string technology. It's because, here's why, first of all, here's why chip and charge used to work. Chip and charge used to work because the ball stays low and players would have to lift the ball in order to simply get it over the net. And when you have to lift the ball, if you don't get tremendous amounts of topspin, you kind of have to hit the ball softer. That's just how physics works. If you have to hit up on the ball, the only thing that brings that ball down is either gravity or topspin. And with old string, string technology... For the most part, it had to be gravity, and now it can be topspin. The amount of spin players can generate now, they can create angles even when the ball is really, really low. It used to be really hard to create angles when the ball was below the net, especially when the ball was below your knees. And now it's not a problem for players anymore. So the chip and charge has been rendered almost useless. But I've been seeing something very interesting from Federer, and I really I want a name for it. I don't know, and you guys can help me out here. Maybe it's the reverse chip and charge. Maybe it's the chip and pass. But it's the new version of the chip and charge. And it's that Federer will hit a short return, a short low return, in a place where opponents will be sort of forced to come to the net because it's so short in the court. But the problem is... Their approach shot was below the net, so it's very difficult for them to hit a good enough approach, and it sets up the next ball for the pass. So, basically, normally it's on the backhand. Sometimes it's on the forehand, though. Federer's good at keeping his return low. Short in the court, you have to come to the net because you're in no man's land, but you can't hit a good approach shot because the ball is so low, and with modern string technology, if you know what I mean— these passing shots are so easy for Federer. So he did it on break point against Sasha Zverev in the second set. And on YouTube, I'm showing the video right now. I don't know where the other one is, though. There should be two of them. Anyway, I apologize. There's really two examples because there's one against Tsitsipas that just isn't coming up for some reason. But essentially, it's the same idea. You're putting players in a difficult position because they have to hit up on the ball in, in a shot where they'd rather not hit up on the ball, 
only it's the opposite because you're bringing them to the net and setting up a pass instead of setting up a volley with the chip and charge. And this is something that you really only see from Federer, especially intentionally. And that's when you start that that's when you start to say, okay, Roger Federer's game is back. When you start to see him winning points that is very unique to Roger Federer. When you start to see him winning points that only he wins. Not in the sense that he came up with some ridiculous shot, but in the sense that his play, his tactic, is more creative and uses tools that other players don't have. And this is an example of that. One more time. The short return forces the player to hit up on the ball and come to the net. They can't hit a good approach shot because the ball's too low, but they're too close to the net where they can't retreat. They have to come in their toast. Federer is going to pass them. And I saw him do that a lot to Sasha Zverev, especially on the forehand side, where Zverev struggles to hit his forehand inside the court. And then I saw him do it um, a good amount against Tsitsipas, who has a better forehand, but it doesn't matter. He still did it. The other thing that I saw from Federer was way more serve and volley. Better serving, but also a lot more serve and volley. Against Sasha Zverev, it was the most I'd seen him serve and volley since, 20, um, since 2017, where he was doing it a lot more often. 2018, not as much. And what that can do is that can put a player in a position where they're hitting the return and you try to see it out of the corner of your eye. When you're, when you're returning serve, you try to see, okay, is, is my opponent serving volleying out of the corner of your eye? But a lot of the time, especially on a first serve, it's pretty hard to do. And it makes people go for tougher returns. It makes players miss more returns because they're thinking, okay, I better keep this return low. Or I better hit this return angle because I think he might be coming in here. It keeps your opponent guessing. That's always a good thing to have in the back of the mind. So Federer goes back to that play, a play he wasn't resorting to enough in 2018. And then the last thing is, and I mentioned it really quick, the him getting away from the defensive chip slice. And I, I see a lot in the comments, Federer needs to play more aggressive. Federer needs to play more aggressive. I think that Federer played aggressive enough at, at many times last year. What Federer needs to do is play less defensive. And I know that sounds like I'm saying the same thing. But I think especially on his backhand wing, he he was too off he too often resigned himself to, oh, okay, I'm playing defense now. Instead of using the extra effort, the extra footwork, the extra speed, the extra strength to try to get there in time and hit over the backhand in defensive positions. Because the floating slice is just not a good play for him. He doesn't have enough speed. And it doesn't—it just doesn't work into his wheelhouse. Check out this, this clip here that I have where Sasha hits a big serve, Federer chip return, pretty deep. But look at the extra effort he makes here to, to hit over his backhand and get back into the rally. I feel like Federer in the past would have chipped this backhand, floating chip, and it would have given Sasha plenty of time to set up the next backhand and, and either go line or cross, either pin him back in, in his backhand corner and probably get another defensive chip or hit it down the line more precisely. Sasha tries to take his next backhand down the line, but Federer's ball has too much pace. It's too hard to change direction, and the backhand down the line is a little bit more too central, more central than Sasha would like, and it worked in Federer's favor. He got back in the rally. If I'm zooming out, big picture, 
You try not to overreact based on two matches, but they were against two really good players, um, and I think Cam Nori's Cam Nori a level below Zverev and Tsitsipas. Uh, but you can't you can't take away from from what you saw Roger Federer do here this week. It's quite impressive, and I'm now at the point where I feel like this is more of a two man race now. Not it's not king of the court anymore. I, I almost thought that the Australian Open was sort of going to be king of the court or or beat the pro. That's what I meant, really. Kind of beat the pro. Where, And I'm not trying to insult anyone. Everyone's a pro, obviously. That should go without saying. But there's a game that, that you play at tennis clubs sometimes. That this, is, this is at a lower level when the pro is actually better at tennis than the juniors. You play beat the pro. And everyone's trying to win two points in a row off the pro. It almost felt like that with, with Novak Djokovic. Like, oh, like he might lose, but let's let's be real about who this is centered around. This whole this whole outlook is centered around if someone can beat Novak Djokovic. Now I feel like it's more of a two-pony race. It's not beat the pro anymore. Now it's more like two guys who I think Federer will will be the 3 seed and I hope I'm not um forgetting how the the Aussie does their seeding, but I'm pretty sure it's not like Wimbledon and they don't alter it much. I think Nadal will be the two seed and Federer will be the three seed. Hopefully, Federer and Djokovic won't play in the semis and they'll play in the finals because my thoughts right now is that it's really mostly between them two. And I will get to Rafael Nadal um, a little bit later. Let me just check my notes to make sure... I've hit on everything with Federer. Yes, I have. So I want to move on to Novak Djokovic, who, as I said at the top, for the first time since last August, lost before a final, lost to Roberto Batista Agut in Doha. And he had dropped a set in all of his previous matches uh, before this match. I I haven't seen any of those. I'm going to go back and watch them. But for now, I just watched the, the RBA match. First of all... Um, RBA went on to win the entire tournament. He played at an incredible level. He beat Stan Wawrinka, who had just beaten Karen Hatchinov in a very impressive performance by, by Stan in that one. Um, he beat Tomas Burdich in the final. So RBA, he's a guy whose career high ranking is number 13. He reached it in 2017. His idols, Juan Carlos Ferrero, David Ferrer, these consistent machine-like players, pitbull-like players, uh, and he plays a lot like those guys. In 2018, he injured his abdomen, he injured his groin, and he lost his mother. Um, this was, uh, I think, during the French Open, RBA um, lost his mother, and from what I've read, he was really close to her. It affected him a lot. Uh, his health later deteriorated. So 2018 was kind of a lost year for RBA, but make no mistake, this is a guy who can bring a top 15 level. Um, I'd say this week, he brought closer to a top 10 level. He can play. I thought that tactically, what happened here with Djokovic, the, the most frustrating thing for him is he couldn't find any inroads in the cross-court backhand-to-backhand rally. RBA was right with him in consistency and depth. And that's what Djokovic does better than the entire tour is consistency and depth, movement and defense notwithstanding. But on that backhand-to-backhand rally, normally Djokovic regardless of who he's playing, can find some inroads into the point. You know, whether that be 
getting a short ball to change direction down the line, whether that be finding opportunity to hit forehands in the middle of the court. But RBA was so solid on that wing. He His backhand, it's like a ball machine. It just doesn't miss. He doesn't go down the line very often with it, but, but literally it's like a cross-court ball machine. And not only does it only go in, but it goes in with pretty good depth. So I, f- I found that Djokovic just, again... Couldn't find any inroads there. RBA's forehand is a little bit different. It packs a little bit more punch. And I've seen him miss more on his forehand wing. But against Djokovic, he wasn't really missing at all. He's especially apt at hitting his inside-out forehand. He hits his forehand with sort of a continental grip. And it ends up getting hit with some side spin, which tails away from the opponent. But also, he can hit that inside-in um, angle as sort of a surprise tactic, and that's kind of his put-away shot. Really, either way, he can he can put it away, inside-out or inside-in. Uh, but that's kind of uh, Bautista Agu's game. Um, I would say that Djokovic, the weakness that, that showed in this, in this match is that he had trouble finishing points. And if there's one thing that hasn't come back from Djokovic prior to the collapse, it might be his power. It might be his upper body strength. I'm not sure if he is as strong in the upper body as he once was. It's something that that I've actually experienced in my game recently. Um, I've never... When I, when I trained more often, honestly, I didn't do any weight training um, in the upper body uh, especially, or I didn't do any, any – I did do some weight training. I didn't do any muscle building I, because I thought I, I play tennis. I can't lose the mobility, the flexibility, the feel. I don't want to get sore. When I started taking tennis a little bit less seriously, I started trying to build some muscle in my upper body. Little did I know – it it made me a way more powerful ball striker, much more, much much stronger, just more explosive. It helped my ball striking a lot. I would say if there's one thing that hasn't made uh, a complete comeback for Novak Djokovic, it might be that upper body strength, that ability to to hit through the court, especially from uh, compromised court position. And you'll see that more on slower courts. And this court looked a little bit slower to me than Australia. Actually, looked a lot slower to me than Australia. And it was just really hard for Djokovic to put away points here. Will that be a problem in Australia? No chance. The court's too fast there. So the the weakness that we saw from Djokovic here... I don't think we'll see in Australia. We could see it on clay. We could see it at Indian Wells. Then again, slow the, the the very slow playing U.S. Open, Djokovic he found ways to to attack. He found ways to finish rallies. He normally finds ways. He takes time away. He's precise. He can find good angles, and he can he can ratchet it up as well on on the on the radar gun. But in this match, it just looked like he was. Lacking the pop to hit through RBA. That's just what it looked like. Another point I want to make is Djokovic didn't play poorly at all. He played really pretty well. And Bautista Agut's level was incredibly high. But 
in the first set, Djokovic won it playing at a really high level. RBA was playing at a really high level. It was great tennis. In the second set, there was less separating the two. Djokovic could have won that set. He could have lost that set. And then in the third set, RBA was simply too good. It was an incredible level from RBA. There's no telling what would have happened in best of five, though, because it felt like the kind of match where Djokovic was steady throughout. For RBA to do what he did for another set would have been really, really hard. I'm not trying to take away from him. What I'm trying to what I'm trying to highlight is the difference between best of three and best of five, where there was kind of a toss-up set, the second set, but RBA had to play at such a high level to play those toss-up sets. And then at the third, he pretty much had to redline to beat Djokovic flat out. He would have had to do that one more time in best of five. It is a totally different animal. Because you can't play one hot set. You got to play at least two. And then maybe one where if you're playing a Novak Djokovic, maybe you get one easier set. Maybe you get one toss-up set that that kind of you force a tie break and maybe get some luck in the tie break. Maybe. But there's no panic here from Djokovic because he played pretty well. And he lost a best of three set match. And that happens. Doesn't happen as often in best of five, but it happens in best of three. Sometimes Novak Djokovic can play well and lose. Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Andy Murray, all the top guys, they can play well in best of three and lose. Normally when they play well in best of five and they're not playing each other, they win. And that's the difference there. It just is. The other thing, the last thing on this is three weeks is a really long time. And so is two weeks. If the final were tomorrow between Federer and Djokovic, and I know I'm jumping the gun here, I haven't seen the draw, you know, by by no means is it already the final, and by no means is it a guarantee that Federer and Djokovic are going to play in the final. But let's just say the final is tomorrow between Federer and Djokovic. Kind of like Federer's chances. You have to like Federer's chances. If you saw what level he was at, and you saw Djokovic's level. And again, I got to go back and watch the matches prior to the RBA match, just film. I got I to gotta take a look at. You got to fancy Fetter. That match would be in three weeks. Do we realize how long that is? Think about the U.S. Open. Djokovic drops a set to Fuksovic. Djokovic drops a set to Tennis Sangren. And then, if I'm not mistaken, he doesn't drop a set the rest of the tournament. Unless he... Did, did, did Djokovic beat him in five or four? I mean, excuse me, three or four? Let me check that. Let me check that. It won't take long at all. Let's see. The point being... No, he didn't drop a set the rest of the tournament. So, so let me ask you this. Are the best players that Djokovic played in the U.S. Open? Tennis Sandgren and Martin Fuksovic. No. But a lot can change in two weeks. And in this case, Djokovic rounded into form over those two weeks. How often have we seen Serena Williams do that on the women's side? How often have we seen Rafa do that? When he went, Rafa, I remember, he went five sets with John Isner on clay in the first or second round, won the French Open. 
This happens all the time. So to, to overreact to Djokovic, oh, he's not in great form. Okay, will he be in great form in two weeks? Will he be in great form in three weeks? That's what matters. Now I want to move on to Rafael Nadal uh, before I wrap up. Um, Nadal had to withdraw from Brisbane with the thigh injury. So now that's three injuries in the last five months or so. The knee, where he retired from the U.S. Open, couldn't really play again for the rest of the fall. The ankle, that was in the offseason, had surgery. And um, now this, this thigh injury. Now, he said that he'll, he'll be 100% for Melbourne, and it was mostly precautionary. That's fine. That's all fine and dandy. Uh, played a fast four match against Nick Kyrgios, lost that match, and Rafa clearly didn't want to dig into that match physically. So he wasn't moving well, but I don't think he was trying to move well. This is un-Rafa-like, but I think he, and I don't think he likes to do it, but I think he just had to bite the bullet here and was like, look, it's better I play than don't play. Let me try to get some rhythm. Um, I know Rafa doesn't like to be out there and not trying to move as with as much intensity as he possibly can. But sometimes he shouldn't, he couldn't, and he didn't. Um, so that's that. But here's the thing for Nadal. I've spoken about how good he is from coming back from injury. He's amazing at it. The problem is there's something that we need to recognize here when it comes to Nadal at the Australian Open. And it's the same thing I say for, like, Roger Federer and the U.S. Open. I don't think Federer will ever win another U.S. Open again. I just don't think it's going to happen. I think the I think that it's too physical and too slow. And I think it's too close to the end of the year. I just don't think Roger Federer will ever be able to do it again. I think I'm, I can say the same thing about the Australian Open and Rafa Nadal. Now, he's only won it once. It's historically his worst major. It was 2009 when he last won it. It's been a long time. But here's the thing for Nadal at the Australian Open. You have to understand that the U.S. Open and the Australian Open, they flipped. It used to be that the Aussie was kind of slow and the U.S. Open was low bouncing and fast. That's not the case anymore. Now, the U.S. Open, it's grittier, it's slower, and the Aussie is all of a sudden, it's mock speed. A lot of players say they think it's faster than Wimbledon. Inter interestingly enough, Rafa Nadal, if you read his book Rafa, titled Rafa, um, he will tell you that he used to... The U.S. Open used to be his least favorite surface of the four majors. He used to like it less than Wimbledon. He used to think that that it was tougher, it was faster, but also that the ball that the balls bounced even lower, and he doesn't like that. Or you know, I don't know if he specifically said it they bounced lower, but I I know he said that the conditions didn't suit him well, and that Wimbledon even suited him better than the U.S. Open. I think it's safe to assume. And by the way, if you'll remember, in this period of time, the U.S. Open was Rafa's last major. He didn't win it until 2010. He, he wanted to win it really bad. He was struggling. What he had to do, what he had to end up doing was, was ramping up his serve. And it was the biggest he ever served, I think, in 2010 U.S. Open. He, he started hitting it flatter. He was hitting it 130. And he finally got that U.S. Open title. But it was really hard for him. Because these fast, low-bouncing hard courts, that's Rafa's worst surface, probably worse than grass. 
His results at Wimbledon before last year, yes, they were they were worse and and they were pretty ugly because he was losing early. But I think that's more more a product of his health at Wimbledon in recent history. I think that a lot of the times he's coming to that tournament not healthy. I think a lot of that has been a matter of what draws he's gotten, and I think a lot of a lot of that is how the grass is the first three four days of the tournament. But as a whole, I don't think there's a worse surface for him than a fast, low-bouncing hardcourt like the Australian Open is now. But I think it's important to highlight that flip. Now the U.S. Open is the slow one. The Australian Open is the fast one. Roger Federer won five U.S. Opens in a row. Rafa Nadal hated the U.S. Open. Now that's flipped. Roger's won two Australian Opens in a row, and he hasn't won a U.S. Open since he won those five U.S. Opens in a row. All that to say, this just isn't going to be Rafa's tournament. Maybe if he was 100% healthy, feeling absolutely fantastic, I, I do think he can adapt his game to, to faster courts now. I think he's mixing it up more. If he can serve bigger, which I think maybe he will, he, he'll put some effort into that this year, especially because his motion looks a little bit different, then maybe. But coming back from injury, being a little bit rusty, watch out for the draw, but I'm just not feeling it for him. Um, We'll, we'll talk about it more in the, in the Australian Open preview once the draw comes out to me. This week showed us that this is not a one-man race. This is a two-man race. And it's between Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer. That does it for us on Monday Match Analysis. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.